Welcome back to the Hybrid Canine Podcast. Today, we're going to be doing some Q&A from Instagram Live. But before we do that, I want to touch base on a question I answered yesterday on Instagram Live that really almost struck a chord with me. Um, I don't think that this person obviously meant it in any ill way, but it was a question that uh, really surprised me and is something I'm not used to seeing, but that when I thought about it, realized is actually very prevalent. And the thing that they asked me was, is it appropriate to use a prong collar or a e-collar on a dog that is really energetic in a house that has low activity? And when I watched the video back, I realized I kind of ran it on for a little bit and I felt like it'd be more appropriate perhaps in a podcast format. But I really wanted to discuss the answer to this question because in my opinion, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Do you need to use a prong collar or an e-collar on a dog that just has high energy, especially when the, when it's within the context of just having a low energy household, right? Um the, the problem with that, right, is that I really think that we need to rise to the expectations of our dogs, right? It's a two-way street. And if our dog simply just has a lot of energy, we need to rise to the occasion and participate with them. We need to give them that biological fulfillment. We need to go and do work with them so that they don't have this high state of energy chronically, right? Um, putting an e-collar or a prong collar on a dog that is just energetic but isn't exhibiting any, you know, really bad behaviors that warrant that tool is just going to be a recipe for disaster. It's going to cap the dog. It's going to perhaps, you know, give them some level of fear and anxiety around the relationship. It's going to completely degrade and diminish the relationship that you have with your dog. So I'd absolutely advise against that. I think that prong collars and e-collars are excellent tools that are helpful in the teaching process. They are not tools that anyone out there should be reliant on. And if you are reliant on them, it's an indication that you are using these tools too heavily, right? They are used to bridge a gap in time, right? And to help provide clarity to the dog in a way that they can understand. Um, But they are not tools. They are not band-aids. They are not things that people should be using in order to manage their dog's uh, energy level, right? We can manage our dog's energy levels by going out and working with them, by walking them, by providing them structure, boundaries, uh, mental fulfillment through giving them a job, could be obedience commands or whatever have you. But um, I'm very weary these days on the implementation of prong collars and e-collars because I do realize that the general public out there looks at these tools as band-aids when they really shouldn't be looked at that. They should be looked as tools that allow us to bridge a gap and help support the learning process. So I just felt like I wanted to start off with that. I do see some questions coming in, but for anyone else that's listening to this that's considered an e-collar or a prong collar, these are like tools that help put icing on a cake, right? They should not be used fundamentally to create your cake. You wouldn't put frosting in your in your cake batter and then put it in the oven, right? You put all that on afterwards if you even need it. Some, ta- some cakes taste great without any icing at all, right? Um, so just keep that in mind when it comes to considering these tools, implementing these tools, and then always work with a trained professional that's going to help you implement these and condition them in the proper way. The dog I'm working with right now was conditioned to an e-collar in a way that was very compulsion-based. It was on a board and train program that was very uh, attached to a timeline. And so while the dog was able to complete behaviors with the use of the collar, now the owners are reliant on it. And the dog has a very negative association with it to where anytime the collar is brought out, the ears are back, they're licking the lips. They just look upset, right, with the collar present. And so we're working on reconditioning what this tool means to the dog 
um, which is a more difficult process than arguably just taking the time to condition it properly in the first place. So those are just some things I wanted to keep in mind and felt like were worth uh, sharing as we kick this thing off. But let's go ahead and start answering some questions. All right, Benny is grateful. How do I teach my chihuahua to roll over? Well, this is going to be the same as teaching your dog really anything, right? So you're going to want to think about the process of rolling over, right? And what I always encourage people to do is to break this down into the smallest steps possible. Well, what does it take for your dog to roll over, right? Well, first, your dog's going to need to know it down. Most dogs do know it down. And then you're going to be able, you're going to need to use a motivator, right? So in this case, probably food to lure your dog and help them move into that position, right? So it might start with your dog just going from laying on its stomach to laying on its side to then laying on its back using your hand and the food in your hand to guide the dog's nose because where the head follows, the body is going to also follow. And so in that case, it might take a few weeks, it might take a little while, but you can slowly but surely put your dog into these slightly different positions, reward them at incremental steps along the way, and every time your dog demonstrates that they're proficient in moving into another part of the command, you want to reward them, and when they, well, like I said, when they show that they're proficient in that, you can increase the expectation of completion, right? So this is a great opportunity to use clicker training, to, to start layering a marker in with that, teaching the whole behavior, and then finally, uh, proofing that so that your dog really understands uh, that one singular word like rollover or that phrase rollover means to do that complete command. So that would be the the quick, you know, 101 on how you would do that, right? Of course, you can go on YouTube or you can really go on any dog training informational site and, and look this up and kind of get a better idea of what it might look like visually to go through those different steps, right? But the first step is to just think about the entire movement, right? And then break it down into several different steps that you can teach them slowly so that they can, you know, ease their way into it. All right, next question. Wag Walk North York. How do I get a dog to not bark at other dogs when on walks? Well, we've talked about this in a lot of the podcasts lately. I think it's because it's getting nice out and so everyone's going on more walks with their dog, which I think is great. Uh, but when it comes to your dog not barking at other dogs, there's a few different things, right? First of all, you're going to want to take some time to understand and try and discern why your dog is barking at other dogs. Is it out of fear? Is it out of nervousness? Is it out of excitement? Those kind of dictate the prescription, so to speak, and how you might course correct this, right? But one of the biggest things that you're going to want to do is build engagement with your dog because you want to be more valuable than the other things in the environment. And so you practice on building engagement with your dog through hand feeding and other practices inside of the home first. When you go out on these walks, you're going to have inherently more value to your dog and they'll be more inclined to listen to you and focus on you rather than these other triggers in the environment. Um, using speed, increasing your pace, using some slight tugging on the leash to keep your dog more focused on you than the trigger is going to also help support that as well. And as you move through and as your dog doesn't react to the other dog because they're more focused on trying to keep up pace with you, you want to then reward them with food if they're doing a good job, right? Affection, whatever it might be, um, and then continue that process until they realize that it's actually more valuable to keep their eyes on you and to move with you rather than reacting to the dog in the environment. I hope that that helps. From Adoptable Philly. Adoptable Philly asks, how would you increase a new rescue dog's engagement outside when they have difficulty focusing even with food? Well, I would lower the expectations. I would go back inside, right? So 
although we'd love for the rescue to build engagement outside and do all this stuff, if they can't focus on food outside, you know, that is a high, that is a very clear sign that they are probably in a state of stress and anxiety and they're not in a, a place mentally where they're able to learn there, right? So uh, if you want to increase their engagement outside, you need to take a step back and help really increase their engagement inside. And really control the environment. So as you move outside, perhaps moving into, you know, from your living room, right, where there's absolutely no distractions to maybe a garage where there's sounds outside to maybe the backyard where there's some more smells from the grass and maybe squirrels and, you know, other little critters running around, then maybe to that front yard sidewalk and then maybe walking around the neighborhood and doing that. So you got to think about it in this way, right? A lot of dog training is really just taking the ideal situation we want and breaking it down into much smaller pieces, right? So I know it's not sexy, it's really not even fun a lot of the times, but this is the way that we can slowly and transiently increase our dog's ability uh, and their confidence through these slow steps. We never want to push our dogs too far because if we push them too far and they have a negative experience, that's what's going to be sticking out in their mind, right? We want them to constantly end on a high note and be yearning to do that activity again. And so if you just aren't in a rush to get to where you want to stay, you dial it back, you go back to the thing that they can complete very successfully and end on a high note, then you can slowly, very slowly, in the smallest step possible, you know, move into the next thing. So it's very similar to putting literally one foot in front of the other. A lot of us are in a rush to get to where we want to stay, and we really underestimate what we'd actually be able to accomplish if we just took one step forward at a time, right? Um, because if we take too big of a step, right, we might you know, push our dogs too far and then have to take some steps backward, right? And we might be further further back than where we even started because we were in a rush. So um, that's what I would suggest there is to mitigate your risk by taking slow steps. Kush 2020s, my dog is an angel and listens to all commands, come sit down, etc. but only if I have treats. How do I get her to listen without having treats all the time? So one, Put a leash on your dog and hold them accountable to the behavior, right? So uh, if your dog is getting a command and you don't have a treat, they still need to complete that command, right? And especially if they know that command and can do it with a verbal marker uh, eight out of 10 times, they definitely know what that command means. And so if they're just simply not doing it because they're not getting quote unquote paid, you need to hold them accountable. And the way you're going to do that is by having a leash on them where you can give them physical guidance into that position. And then you're going to want to move to a variable reward schedule, right? So what likely happened is that you reinforce your dog with treats so much that anytime you don't have that treat, right, they go, I'm not getting paid, I'm not doing this, right? Um, but the command, right, is not really an ask. It's a, hey, you, you need to do this, right? So the more that you give a command, right, and then your dog doesn't actually have to be accountable for completing that command, it devalues the, the marker, devalues the command because they realize I don't actually have to do this. And so you're kind of in this rock and a hard place where you need to take a step back, do the unfun thing, put a leash on your dog and hold them accountable to these commands. When they, of course, complete the command, that's when you can reinforce with something else, right? Maybe, maybe it's affection. Maybe it's uh, playing with a toy outside. Um, maybe it's, you know, giving them their food at night um, and practicing some hand feeding. All these things can start to help if you uh, want to work on more of a variable reward schedule and not having to rely on treats all the time. Rebecca H. asks, how do you teach your dog to only use the bathroom in a certain part of the yard? Well, uh, once again, the leash is our best friend here, right? So for a certain amount of time, what you're going to want to do is condition your dog, right? Think about something that we do in our routine, right? 
I wake up, I got to get coffee right away. I'm conditioned to that. It's the first thing I think about when I wake up. I'm like, where am I going to get coffee? Going to Starbucks? Am I going out in the living? You know, whatever it might be, I'm conditioned to drink coffee first thing in the morning, for better or for worse, right? But our dogs aren't that different, right? And so when we want to teach them to use a certain part of the yard, if you're crate training your dog or you're taking them outside, I know it's probably a fence in the yard, but what you're going to do is you're going to put a leash on your dog. You're going to take them to the spot that you want them to go. You're going to give them an opportunity to do their business. If they don't, you're just going to go back inside. Ideally, you're going to crate them. Five minutes later, you go back out to that exact spot and you start teaching them, hey, this is your opportunity to go here. Like, we're going to go to this spot and I'm going to give you a time period to go. If you choose not to do that, we're going back inside in the crate or in a certain contained area. We'll go back out. You're going right back to that spot. And if you don't go, rinse and repeat. The crate works really well here because dogs are very unlikely to soil their own space. So that's where this can come into play. When your dog starts going out there and immediately goes to that spot when you take them out there and they go, like within the first minute or immediately when they get there, that's when you can start taking the leash back off, walking out there with them, making sure they go, going through that. And then, of course, after a certain period of time, they're just going to you know, condition themselves that, hey, that's the spot I go to. So that's how I would do that, right? Um, is by doing it first on a leash, then going out there with them, not on a leash, but, you know, going out physically with them to that spot, then slowly phasing yourself out to where you can let them out and they're going to naturally just be inclined to go to that spot. Um, I hope that that helps. All right. This is going to be my last question for today's podcast before I pack up my bags and migrate to the lobby. Kathy Pamela asks, my dog is extremely afraid and nervous towards kid. kids. Do you think a muzzle is a solution to try an introduction or would that be a good one? So I think that's a great consideration. A muzzle is a great thing to train your dog to be able to do. Muzzle training your dog is very valuable. Um, I would not do it simultaneously, right? So I would first Muzzle train your dog so that they don't feel the muzzle is this way that they then participate with the kids, right? You want your dog to be willing to go into the muzzle. And there's a lot of videos and content out there that will teach you how to muzzle train your dog in a very step-by-step based process, similar to what we've talked about with the rollover and some of these other things we've discussed. So I do think that that would be a great way to um, start introducing your dog to uh, kids, right? But one thing to really be aware of is that a lot of dogs don't really like the energy of kids because um, it's they're so high energy, right? And so it can kind of create anxiety and nervousness in, the, in dogs, right? And so when it comes to introducing them, when I say introduce, I don't mean, hey, the kids need to come over and physically pet the dog, get in their space, especially with the muzzle on, right? I think the muzzle is a safety. It's a seatbelt that's going to restrict them from obviously being able to hurt a kid or a child. Um, but you're going to want a muzzle trained first so that the dog's association is positive with the muzzle. It's not this, it's a, it's a neutral thing on their face. It's not this negative thing. And then of course you don't want to make the muzzle, you know, um, you don't want it to be negative by create a negative association by then while the dog has the muzzle on, have the kids be able to go invade the dog's space and encroach, you know, its space. Um, that's where the dog's going to want to advocate for itself, right? Because in that case, the owner or the person isn't advocating for the dog, right? So muzzle train the dog and then have them coexist in an environment together where they can learn to be around kids without having to have direct participation. And that's where it can be a little challenging with the kids because kids don't always listen, but, you know, have a lot of oversight. Certainly don't leave the kids alone with the dog, even with the muzzle on. Um, but those things can definitely coincide to uh, really create a very neutral space where, 
the dog is able to be around kids without being triggered or nervous or anxious or uh, and mitigate the likelihood that they're going to have some kind of negative reaction or behavior expressed, right? Um, the other side of that is really working your best to explain to the kids that the dog might not be that friendly, that the dog doesn't really, you know, want to be pet, um, and really setting some boundaries with your kids to not um, breach the space of the dog and create a negative association with them. So that would be my advice there. Um, it, of course, this process might take weeks, could take a month, you know, could take longer just depending on your dog's natural state and their personality. And, you know, some dogs are very social and love kids and get excited and just want to play. And then some dogs really just don't like that energy. So um, I think it's something to um, perhaps just proceed with caution and do those things. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Do them, um, you know, separately from one another. So muzzle train first and then introduce the kids in this neutral setting. But once again, not with that direct participation necessarily. So that's what I would do there. I hope that that answer helps. And that is where we're going to wrap up for today. Appreciate everyone asking some great questions this morning. Those were some awesome and unique questions that we haven't gotten before. If you aren't already subscribed to the podcast, go ahead and follow us, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you're listening this to, Apple Podcasts. If you want to follow us on social media and ask some of these questions, you can follow us at Hybrid Canine on all platforms. If you're looking for training, www.hybridcanine.com. We can train you locally if you're in the Raleigh-Durham area. Or, of course, we are happy to provide virtual training, which is actually one of my favorite things to do uh, if you just visit the site and book a session there. So with that being said, I will talk to you next time. Don't forget, training is a journey, not a destination. Peace.